This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sectors Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Destinations International, where registration for this year's annual convention is now open. Join your peers in Dallas for an amazing week of learning, networking, and camaraderie, July 18, 19, and 20. Go to destinationsinternational.org to learn more and reserve your spot. And now it's on to our show. A futurist, marketing strategist, and facilitator, Chris Fair holds a master's degree in studies of the future and has married his marketing expertise with future methodologies to help a wide variety of clients envision and create developmental strategies, plans, and brands that shape the future of places around the world. As president of residence, Chris leads a team that has completed more than 100 visioning, strategy, planning, and branding projects for destinations, cities, and developers in more than 20 countries. Chris is the chairman of the Urban Land Institute's Travel Experience and Trends Council, a member of the Project for Public Spaces Leadership Council, and a past instructor in placemaking at New York University. In 2013, Chris was recognized as the Place Branding Thought Leader of the Year at the World Sense of Place Summit. In 2016, he designed the world's best cities rankings in partnership with National Geographic to analyze and rank 400 global cities based on a unique benchmarking model that blends core statistics with millions of consumer rankings and reviews in 23 different categories. The world's best cities rankings are now the most widely read and publicized city ranking on the planet. And Chris also founded and launched the World City, the global forum for urban innovation that brings city builders together from around the world. Chris Fair, welcome to DMOU. Thanks for having me, Bill. Great to be here. Absolutely. It's, it's been way too long, and I'm glad that we got together. You know, as our cities emerge from the pandemic that upended our perception of what we consider to be desirable in a place to live, work, and recreate, we're seeing growing alignment in the way that citizens, corporations, and travelers choose cities to visit, to live, and I think most importantly, to invest in. So residents has their best city rankings, and that's determined by analyzing the performance of each city for a wide range of factors that have historically shown positive correlations with attracting employment, investment, and visitors. So these factors shape a city's, if you will, lovability, and your research indicates that they tend to drive investment and local prosperity more than, you know, the typical, everybody says, well, I moved here because of the schools were great. Well, I'm sure that's true for some, but for many of us, schools is not exactly on the top five. So first question, you've been sharing your take on best cities around the globe and around North America for years. Before we get into this year's findings on the top 100 in America, why are rankings important? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that we're all accustomed in the world of destination marketing to analyzing you know, visitor perception, maybe resident perception and in some some destinations. So we've been doing that for decades. Um, and we've also been quantifying and measuring where visitors are coming from. So we have lots and lots of data on the demand side for tourism. Uh, but what's really been missing is been any data or analysis on the supply side. 
know, back in the day, people would go in and do qualitative destination assessments and it would be somebody like yourself or, right. or me, we would, yep. or another consultant and we'd wander around the town and we'd give them a, an A for the convention center, a B for retail or a C for uh, entertainment. And it would just be a subject. And a D for signage. Yeah. yeah so always wayfinding <laughs> an issue, right? Uh, so you right. have those qualitative assessments, uh, but that's through the lens of one person. And of course, you would never do a visitor perception survey by asking 10 people what they thought about the city, right? You'd go out there and you'd, you'd ask thousands. So the whole point and the genesis really of creating these rankings was to come up with a methodology to benchmark the quality of the product from an objective perspective, not a subjective one. And we first started this process and the whole idea behind this actually was back in 2014. We were working with Forch Ireland, which is Ireland's National Tourism Development Authority. And we were working on a brand strategy to attract more international visitors to the south and east of the country. And they gave, we asked, okay, well, what's the product that we have? And they gave us a map and it had more than a thousand sites identified on it. You know, and a place like Ireland has got, you know, great culture, great history. There are more than a thousand assets. And we had to say, well, how do we determine which one of these are important to the international visitor? And that was kind of the light bulb for me that went off where we were saying, well, why don't we go into TripAdvisor? It's the most visited travel site in the world. And let's strip out all the reviews that international visitors have made for this country in terms of looking at both the quantity and the quality. Anyway, long story short, we got through that process and we found that there were about, actually out of these thousand things, there were really about 60 things that were driving interest and motivation and recommendation from international visitors. Mm -hmm. So that was the the beginning of trying to think about how we can benchmark places and and creating these rankings um, using not just core statistics, but actually mining user-generated data in channels like TripAdvisor or Yelp or Facebook or Instagram so that we can kind of quantify and look at and compare and understand what are the key strengths of one place versus another. Let's do the perception research. We still do that. Let's talk to the local community yeah. in terms of what they think, but let's have an objective point of view so that we're not just seeing the tip of the iceberg, but we're seeing what's underneath it below the surface. So ultimately when you do these rankings though, I mean, there's a target market here and it's developers, but it's also people looking for their next place. So, you know, in the question of why the rankings are important, there's a reason why people were all gaga years ago about, and I forget, it was either Money or Inc. Magazine, you know, trying to get the best place to live, right? But it's, it goes beyond living, right? So there's lots of rankings out there, right? You know, I like to say rankings are, they're like catnip for humans. You know, we all like to be able to think <laughs> at these, yeah. just like, where are we in these rankings? And it just makes, it takes something incredibly complex and communicates it in, in, in a very simple way. So there's lots of rankings out there and there's rankings that look at livability. There's rankings that look at smart cities. There's rankings that will tell you, you know, the best or most romantic cities, et cetera. Uh, what we really tried to do in our approach to thinking about rankings was understand what are the factors that are attracting people to choose a city to live in? What are the factors that are attracting people to choose a city to visit? And, you know, what are the factors that are attracting people to do business in a city. So, you know, we started out, we partnered with Ipsos and, and we did a survey to, you know, across American households and American business decision makers to ask them what was really important 
in choosing a city to live, visit, or invest? And there were th distinct answers from those three different perspectives. Some overlap. Um, there were three that were common at the top of the list in all three, and that was cost in terms of safety and climate in terms of the weather that really overlapped in all three. And then you got distinct things where, you know, obviously housing affordability is important if you're choosing city to live, or as you mentioned, people say schools are important. Right. If you're coming to a city to visit, it's nightlife, et cetera. But one of the most interesting work I think that we've done is then taking those factors that people tell us are important and analyzing them against over a thousand different statistics, both user-generated data, core statistics, to say, are these really, does the performance in these areas, like safety, for example, or time to commute to work, really influencing where people are moving to or what cities they're choosing to visit? Um, and the answer to that is, in most cases, no. We find very low correlations between what people tell us are, is important versus what we see in terms of how people behave. Interesting. And I think people are surprised when you first say that, but then I come back and say, well, if good schools, if commute time to work, cheap housing uh, was all really accessed outdoor spaces, was really all important to us, we would have all been moving to the middle of the country rather than the coast, to places that have more affordable housing, low commute time to work, et cetera. So, so the reality is that there's things that we say are important are actually the things we desire to have in a city. And that, those are important in terms of we want livable, safe, vibrant places, but they're not necessarily what ultimately drives decisions. And it's not just the qualitative factors, even when it comes to tax rates, business decision makers will tell you that corporate tax rates are really important in, in their location decisions. But we actually find there is no correlation whatsoever between the tax rate differences from one state or city to another and where businesses are forming. Actually, the bigger indicator is nightlife. The most uh, highly correlated factor with where new businesses and startups are forming is the number of very good or excellent nightlife experiences. So it's not saying that nightlife is causing businesses to form. Maybe businesses formation is causing, it's just saying that there's a relationship there um, and that's important. So when you look at these rankings and you really dig into the data, you know that's where we can find the insights that really challenge some of our conventional thinking about what's important when it comes to visitor attraction, resident attraction, or investment attraction. Yeah, and that is just fascinating because, and I've been doing this long enough to know that just because I think something is important doesn't mean it's important for anybody else. And, you know, I'm a music guy, I'm a nightlife guy, that's what makes my decisions on where I'm going to take a leisure trip, right? But I keep encouraging our clients to say, we need to figure out how to either articulate or enhance the nightlife because that's going to be the reason I stay another night. Because if, if I'm done at dinner and I'm close, I'm going to drive home. And I think that the whole point of nightlife and investment is the same thing. It's, you know, if I'm going to invest in this community and I'm going to drop a company of whatever, 50, 100 people here, I have to know that the people that I'm going to be bringing with me or attracting are going to want to live in this town. And because nightlife is one of those markers, when there's a block and that's not happening, it's fascinating that I think that, that everything flows from that. It all begins to slow because 
there's a lack of nightlife. So interesting that you say that. So the top 100, which you release today, the top 100 here in America, the top two, no surprise, New York, Chicago, number three, LA. And hey, you know, New York, Chicago, some of my favorite cities. And I'm elated that my hometown of Madison makes the top 50, the highest rated city in your study of a town under a million population. But let's focus on the lower tier. That's really where I think the top 50 are kind of expected. But in the lower tier, you're talking Oxnard, California, Poughkeepsie, New York, Allentown, Springfield, Mass, Akron, Dayton, not cities that people would expect to be in the top 100. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, you're you're exactly right. So the we released the uh, America's best cities rankings for for 2023 today, and you know as you would expect, the largest cities are at the top of the list. Um, you know, and a lot of that's just based on scale. You know, the sheer size of New York, right? And in terms of the size of its economy, the amount of nightlife experiences, restaurants, all the different factors um, that we look at, uh, New York leads leads the way in. But it does get interesting because we look at experiential factors, you know, things like shopping, nightlife, restaurant, culture, attractions, because we look at factors like educational attainment, because we look at factors, you know, like Instagram hashtags, check-ins that were on Facebook, et cetera, smaller cities do bubble up and, and perform well that are below a million people. I think that largely relates to their strength in terms of quality of place, because we look at walkability, we look at bike score, uh, we look at the quality of parks and outdoor activities. So a lot of those small centers can, you know, fare quite well in those those particular areas. They also have great restaurants or they can have, you know, good culture. They can have great uh, educational attainment. I mean, I look at, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, you know, your, your hometown ranks seventh in the entire country for educational attainment. You're living in a, a smart city. Mm-hmm. In terms, of, so yep. that drives uh, Madison's position up in the rankings. Yeah, um, you also have shared prosperity. Madison ranks fourth for the share of the population uh, below the poverty line. So there's relatively few people living in poverty in Madison. So some of our small cities, actually, some of the big challenges that our cities are facing in terms of the vibrancy of our downtowns, in terms of poverty, in terms of education, in terms of diversity access to nature, outdoor activities. There's a lot of our small cities are, have an advantage over the New Yorks and the LA's and the Chicago's in dealing some, with some of these critical issues that we find are becoming increasingly important in determining where people want to visit, where they want to live and, and where they want to do business. So as we look at some of these second tier cities, there are those advantages that you've just noted that you know access to outdoor recreation and maybe lower crime rates, and maybe it's better housing availability. But tell me more about the methodology that gets you to, I mean, a a Poughkeepsie, New York kind of stands out for me. And this is in no way a shot at Poughkeepsie, but it doesn't have the greatest name recognition out there. I mean, people have kind of made Poughkeepsie kind of the butt end of a joke. And yet, it scores very, very high. Dayton, Ohio, same thing. Dayton has had, you know, this, I want to say de-evolution, but I mean, Dayton was a great town and then it just kind of very slowly began to fade and now is on the upswing again. So 
What were some of the surprises to you? Obviously, you know, your crack staff loads all the data, it spits out through your methodology, and you look at the list and you go, really? <laughs> I mean, there has to be some communities that you were surprised about. What were some of yours? Yeah, for me, that, uh, you know, kind of stands out is like, you know, Provo and, and Ogden and, and Utah. Mm-hmm. I mean, most people, Salt Lake City isn't necessarily on the map for a lot of, a lot of people. Um, but then here we have these even smaller cities in Utah, uh, like Ogden and Provo that are, are doing well and they're, you know, attracting companies, they're attracting investments. So, the, you know, those kind of pop out at me, you know, when I look at, look at the list here and, and uh, uh, make me want to go and visit actually, right? Like it creates the question of, you know, why is that city, what is Allentown, Pennsylvania doing that it's ranked 15th for walkability in all of America? So obviously, you know, some of these, there's things happening within in these smaller cities. And that's typically what drives some of these smaller cities up the ranking is they're not good at a lot of things, but they're good at a few things. Lancaster, Pennsylvania is ranked fourth for walkability, but it probably doesn't have anything below other than that in the, in the top 30. So that drives up. And I think that's, that's probably a testament to some cities that have kind of drawn a line and said, you know, made an investment that we're going to invest in X. Uh, Boise, for example, ranks 21st for bikeability. So, you know, somebody made a decision at some point in time that biking was important and they were going to invest in that. Um, you know, I live in a city uh, in Vancouver that invested in light rail transit back in the 80s that is still paying dividends today. I mean, there was visionary leadership to um, invest in things, not necessarily what that were popular at the time, but that they thought were going to be important and attractive to residents and visitors in the future. So that I think is uh, what you start to see in here are those, those cities that have made intentional investments. Sometimes you just get lucky and you're blessed with great, you know, natural assets, you know, whether you live close to nature, like, you know, Virginia beach ranks 18th for parks and outdoor activities. Well, because it's on a beach and it has a lot of different, uh, different (laughs) natural assets. So that wasn't visionary leadership. That was just being blessed with good luck. But in other, a lot of these other areas, there were very intentional investments in museums, cultural institutions, convention centers is a factor that we look at because we see that it's correlation, not just with visitor attraction, but business investment. Uh, so some of these are, are factors that uh, a city has invested in intentionally to make itself you know, more attractive or, you know, over time. And some of them, they've just gotten lucky. Yeah. And intentionality, I think in the dictionary under intentionality, when it comes to community building, and you got to look at Indianapolis. I mean, they just went all in on saying, we're going to be the center of sports and everything that connects to sports from nightlife to culinary to retail. I mean, downtown Indianapolis is stunning. And those who've never been, and it's funny because I've heard Indianapolis's name come up probably five times in the past month from people who are just going, oh, have you ever been to Indy? Man, I'm, I'm just I'm blown away. And it's one of those communities that I think we all know is there and has done great things over the past 20, 30 years. But all of a sudden, it's starting to kind of pop on people's lips. It's like, yeah, that's that's one of those next destinations, right? Yeah, and I mean, that's a good example where Indianapolis doesn't have the best natural assets in terms of the environment. It actually ranks 84th in our place category, but 
it's invested, as you mentioned, into sports and convention centers. It ranks 35th in our product category. And it's actually highest ranking is 26th in the country for programming. That's nightlife, culture, shopping, uh, entertainment. So those investments in the product helped create the platform for all the programming that's there. And that's actually what its highest score. And that's what drives it up in our overall, uh, yeah. overall rankings. So if we can work from anywhere, obviously, why wouldn't we be there? So has anything changed in your methodology since COVID and what makes a city better and what can DMOs do to elevate their position in your rankings? Multiple questions there. I think yeah. the you know, first one is just in terms of... I, I got to keep it to three, right? So <laughs> I'm going to load multiples. Here, no problem. Right? The first one in terms of what's changed is, yeah, we do update the methodology since we started this eight years ago. We continue to research to see which factors are driving and having a correlation with visitors, attraction, investment attraction, and growth in talent. And those factors have changed a little bit. So we've taken climate actually, and we've taken safety out of the rankings because we no longer see correlations with between the weather in a city and attraction of visitors or between the crime rate and visitors, business, et cetera. So we all want to go someplace okay. safe. But if I asked you, what's the most dangerous city in America? Or what are the top 10 safest cities? You wouldn't be able to tell me what the crime rate is probably in any of them, right? So there are events happen, they shape perception, and then kind of life goes on. Right. There is this sense that Chicago is now very dangerous. And yet, does that stop me from going? No. Right? Yeah. And it might, I mean, over time, you do probably reach a tipping point, right? But the subtle differences between being 20th in crime and 40th in crime don't really yeah. shape behavior. Right. Um, so we've seen some factors like those that we've updated now with walkability and bikeability. So, you know, those have become over the last eight years since when we started the ranking yep. increasingly important and we can see correlations between where visitors are going and, and where people are moving to based on their walkability and, and bikeability. So there are some factors that we've, you know, updated over time. I think what's changed the most is the relationship. You know, we started at the beginning. I was talking about there were different reasons people told us they choose a city to live, and there were different reasons why people chose a city to visit, and different reasons why they chose a city to invest and do business. And some of those overlapped, but there were these three different distinct points of view. You know, we chose to create our methodology and approach to look at how do we integrate all three of those. And those three circles, if you think about it as a, as a Venn diagram, have become becoming tighter and tighter. And I think what happened during COVID and with the rise of remote work is they've almost become one and the same now. That the reason why I want to visit a city or mm -hmm. the reason why I want to move to a city, if I can live anywhere, I don't have to choose a city based on the job location. I can choose a city based on quality of life or the nightlife or parks and outdoor activities, whatever's important to me. And therefore I might choose a city to start a business in based on kind of the vibrancy city. So COVID and the rise of remote work that seems to be sticking now has really kind of liberated us to choose, you know, when you can live anywhere, I like to say you want to live somewhere. And the somewheres are the places actually that are most defined by the factors that drive our visitor economy. Yeah. You know, the in, with the vibrancy of the city in terms of you know, shopping, nightlife, restaurants, culture, 
outdoor activities, et cetera. So those things that we started this that were really just important, mostly to, from a tourism and a visitation perspective, are now front and center from an economic development perspective. So this kind of merger of the two is, I think, in a really challenging. And we, we're working with you know, really progressive DMOs in Brussels in Belgium and Houston in Texas, Christchurch in New Zealand. They get it. And we're developing integrated brand strategies and development plans that don't just think about tourism. They think about how do we leverage what's important to tourism to attract talent and investment and really unify our positioning and messaging in a way that we can use it for all three of these different audiences. And I think that is the future of destination marketing yeah, is looking at it, not just driving the visitor economy, yep. but driving the whole economy mm -hmm. of the, of the city and the urban area. Yeah. And doesn't it put an exclamation point on Richard Florida's rise of the creative class, what, 15 years ago, when he said people will go to a place rather than go for a job? And while the hierarchy of the economy and the state of the economy will sometimes wiggle with that, if the economy is strong, we do have that ability to go where we want to go. And that's where the businesses will locate is where the top talent is. I mean, agree or disagree with Carly Fiorina's politics. You know, when she was at Hewlett Packard, she said, don't offer subsidies. Just tell me where the talent is and we'll build there. That's, that's all we want. Yeah, if only we could stop offering the subsidies then. <laughs> but um... Right, but that's always out there. So the second part of that question, is there anything that a destination marketing or a destination leadership organization can do to impact these rankings going forward? Yeah, I mean, the rankings are objective. So it's really about, you know, investing in obviously the categories that we're measuring, whether that's the connectivity of your airport, your convention center, your university ranking, your nightlife, um, your cultural attraction. So, but you know, that doesn't change the move the needle overnight. Yeah. You know, these are really right. long-term efforts. I think, you know, the first thing a destination needs to do is understand why it ranks where it ranks. The overall ranking really isn't important. I often say, you know, these rankings are entertaining. And so they're like catnip for humans. People are just, we just drawn to them. Mm -hmm. But if you really want it, what a DMO to use is not worry so much about what the overall ranking is, but worry about and look at what's within that, what's driving that overall ranking. So you understand, you know, what your strengths and weaknesses are. And the weaknesses are obviously things that if, if you believe they're important to your target audiences, um, not everything's important to everyone. So you kind of have to filter that through and say, you know, what types of visitors, what types of industries are we trying to attract what's most important to those visitors or industries? How do we score in those areas? And let's leverage our strengths and develop our weaknesses. And yeah. I think that's what's often underappreciated is somebody might look at this and go, oh, we're 58th and or 74th. This ranking sucks. But maybe within the ranking, you're actually 12th for your culinary scene in all of America. And you should be looking at, well, that's a real point of leverage. Maybe you're 12th in America and you're first in the Southwest or, you know, in the Midwest. And now you have a real strength. And, and the, this has happened in several projects we've worked on where we've unearthed strengths that maybe anecdotally, like we were working with Ottawa and Ottawa discovered through our analysis that they had more outdoor activities than any city in the entire country of Canada. You would have thought it would be Calgary near the Rocky Mountains really? or Vancouver, yeah. but it turns out it's Ottawa. Yeah, And people there intuitively knew that, like they all participate in outdoor activities, but now they have this 
validated position through data that tells them that they are the most outdoor active city in all of Canada. And that's something that you can really build positioning and cool. programming and uh, strategies around. So that to me is the best way is not to worry so much about where you rank. It's understanding why you rank where you are and using those insights to really make meaningful change rather than trying to spend a little bit of money on everything and ending up doing nothing. That's brilliant. Thank you. So the results are being published today. Where can people find the rankings? So the rankings available for free at uh, World's bestcities.com. Um, you can view them online or you can download the uh, the full report. You know, we update these every year. Uh, the America's rankings come out uh, in June every year. Um, this fall, we'll be releasing the world's best cities rankings. Uh, we just released Europe's best cities rankings a few weeks ago. It's been an interesting journey that, to not only look at where cities rank today, but now that we've been doing this for eight years, we've built a database and we can start to look at and evaluate how cities are changing over time. So I'm really looking forward to starting to publish some of that data um, that we use in our consulting work and practice privately, but you know, publicly being able to start to look at that so people can kind of see you know, how cities are changing uh, um, over the course of time and you know, where cities are improving. And sometimes when cities are dropping, it's actually a function of not doing anything at all. And I think that's what's kind of underappreciated is that you can be a great city, mm, you can have great yeah. nightlife or great walkability, and your ranking might go down because other cities are improving. And that's, I think, what's underappreciated is just how competitive. And I think it's going to become more competitive in moving forward as people realize now that businesses don't have to be any someplace. Conventions don't have to happen in one particular city. And as I said earlier, if you can be anywhere, you want to be somewhere. Um, so this kind of work and under these kinds of insights are going to be uh, even more important to the future of, of cities around the world. Yeah, very cool. So time for your bonus round question. And this is probably unfair. It's kind of like saying, uh, which of your children is your favorite? <laughs> but do you have a favorite place? Yeah, I have lots of favorite cities. Um, and I, I won't pick, <laughs> Don't we all? I won't pick any of my clients. But you know, I grew up in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, which was probably about 650,000 people back, uh, you know, 40 years ago when I was a kid. And, and all I could aspire to was to get out of Calgary, to leave the city. Right. Calgary actually is 1.2 million people. It's an amazing city now. We work with them all the time. I use them as an example. Uh, but it wasn't so great, uh, you know, 40 years ago. It was pretty, pretty much a one-trick town. And I just wanted to explore the world. And I ended up going to university in, in Montreal. And that, to me, was, I think, really where the first place I ever fell in love with. I, you know, I remember the first time we, we fall in love and it mm -hmm. was really driven by, you know, what was it? It was, well, people, there were sidewalk cafes and patios. I mean, I, 18 years old, I'd never been to Europe. So this was probably the closest I'd ever had at that point to a, a European type experience. The food was amazing. I went to jazz clubs at night and there was all this live music. Um, you know, there were just a bunch of things and experiences that I had never experienced in you know, Western Canada or the Western US and all of you know, the cities that I had traveled to growing up. So for me, that was kind of where I first, you know, a place that I ended up going to school. I ended up, you know, living there for many years. And it's a place that, you know, we still have a, a team in an office at, with residents, a small team there. I'm actually going back there, you know, next week to participate in a conference. And we're bringing our uh, a client for a project we're working on in India to Montreal to uh, help have them walk the city with us and, and talk about what quality of place is. So 
I think that for me is the the first love is always the best love. And uh, yeah, that one will stick with me forever. You know, great story. My first love was actually fairly deep into my adult life. It was when I came here to Madison to interview for the job. I'd never been to Madison, didn't know anything about the city and actually hit town probably 20 minutes before the interview. So I still didn't know anything about the town when I went into interview, but then I had the evening free and I wasn't going to drive back home. So I just began to walk the city and drive the city. And by the next morning, I wanted to live in this city. Whether I got the job at the DMO or not, I made the decision that day, this is where I want to live. And you're right. That first love thing is powerful. Well, so you didn't know anything about the city before you got there and they still hired you? Well, okay. So it's a funny story. I really didn't want the job here because what I was really doing was trying to get my board back at my other DMO to give me a raise because they had they zeroed me. And I was going, come on, guys. And I wanted to put a little fear into them that I was going to leave. So I made it very clear I was going to interview in Madison. <laughs> so I was horrible. I knew nothing about the city. I, I, it was the worst interview in my life. And when I got the job after the second interview, I asked somebody on the search committee, I said, why did I get a second call? I mean, I was horrible. And they said, well, we have one person on the search committee that's very, very anal. And we had agreed that we were going to take the six candidates to three. And there were only two people we really liked. And she said, no, 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 no. We said three. We're going to do three. And somebody said, well, let's bring that punk from Illinois in and find out what's wrong with him because he clearly didn't want the job. <laughs> and so when I got the call, I had a week until the second interview. And of course, I'm this is before the internet, right? So I'm, I'm at the library every evening for a week going over microfiche, trying to figure out what this town is all about, get the history, and then it came in and got the job. So you're right. Yeah. How the hell did I get this job? I have no idea. That's right. Well, if, if only you'd had the best cities rankings, you could have just looked it all up online and gone into your <laughs> That's right. Or, Where were you when I needed you? <laughs> <laughs> right. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for sharing this preview into one of the most important studies that's out there. It's important, I think, because it sets a benchmark, a North Star for a lot of us, those of us that have aspirations to become better. And thanks for loving my town as much as I do. Great. Appreciate it, Bill. Thanks for having me. You bet. That's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and your peers this is where the best and the brightest come to share their stories. It's DMOU.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, our friends at Destinations International, where registration for this year's annual convention is open. Join your peers in Dallas for an amazing week of learning, networking, and camaraderie. It's July 18th through the 20th. Go to DestinationsInternational.org to learn more and reserve your spot. DMOPros.com is where you're going to find links to our services for the DMO sector, links to the Z News, position papers on board diversity, and a new model for destination development, the book Destination Leadership, and the biggest DMO job board on the planet, plus access to past episodes of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>